Vedic. And I'm Michelle McCarran. And, and together, together we are adding to the equation to share with you what teaching and learning mathematics sounds like. With inspiration from our math heroes, we're echoing some important messages about teaching and learning mathematics. We want to invite you to learn alongside us in our math journey so that we can all grow as math learners. Welcome to another episode of Adding to the Equation. Michelle and I are super excited to talk to Peter Lilliadal. Dr. Peter Lilliadal is a professor of mathematics education at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada. He's the current president of the Canadian Mathematics Education Study Group, past president of the International Group for the Psychology of Mathematics Education, editor of the International Journal of Science and Mathematics Education, has written numerous books, book chapters, and journal articles, all on the central topic of teaching and learning mathematics. Hello, Michelle and Kurt. How's it going, Peter? Good, how are you? Not too bad. How's your day going? Good. I just finished doing a three-hour session with uh, an education company, so I've been on Zoom a lot today. <laughs> Great. Uh, well, we really appreciate you taking some time. Uh, it's lunchtime there, is it? I just had my lunch. And by the way, Lisa Lenny Borden says hello. I was in a meeting with her on Friday and I mentioned I was doing this. Wow, that's cool. Maybe maybe that'll be some incentive to uh, kind of convince her to be one of our next guests. Oh, she would be great. Yeah, she is great. We're lucky to have her here on the East Coast. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Peter, on uh, Adding to the Equation. Michelle and I were just talking, one of our big themes and goals of this uh, podcast and project is kind of, um, you know, thinking about our journey and kind of talking about those next steps and decisions and how to go about those decisions. And we always come back to kind of our math heroes. Um, and we want to share with you that, you know, you are one of our math heroes. Okay. Um, you're providing us a great um, roadmap and, and framework to try new things. and. Uh, we just want to ask you, who is who's one of your heroes, one of your math heroes that inspired you along your journey? Oh, my. Okay. That's a question that is, um, is sort of unexpected. Um, so the people who have really inspired me in, in, the, in the past um, and, and continue to inspire me, well, let, let, okay, so, hmm. Well, let, let's work backwards here on this. So uh, the people that inspire me now, I think would probably be the same people who inspire you, right? I'm inspired by people who are, are big names on Twitter, people who have done phenomenal work um, in, in trying to promote math education across Canada and across North America. So people like Joe Bowler, Dan Meyer, uh, John and Kyle, with uh, Making Math Moments. Um, the, the, I'm inspired by the work that these people do and, and continue to do to try to actually, um, what's the term, to, to, to make change, to, 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 uh, to move the needle. So those are people at a large scale, but then there's people who are working very hard within their own classrooms and within a very, within a sort of periphery around them. Um, people like Nat Banting, Alex Overwich, Will Dunn down in the U.S. Uh, and um, 
so these are people who are passionately implementing things within their classroom and trying to implement that um, within their own close community. And, and then tonight, Will is organizing this sharing and Jamie DePipo, I'm a huge fan of, I've been in Jamie's classroom many times and watching the way she she deals with students is just remarkable. And Alicia Burdess, who, who is a, a good friend of mine in Grand Prairie, who has taken on the task of trying to to document tasks that can be used in thinking settings and, and to teach curriculum through these thinking tasks. And then it goes right down to some classroom teachers I've worked with, I'm not gonna mention their names, but, but people whose classrooms I can go into and just feel comfortable being in there and, and, and just enjoying being in that space and working with them. And, and of course, um, Every one of the people I've mentioned now is in many ways a proxy for someone I didn't mention, right? So it's, it, there's, there's people all, all over the place that, that, you know, I mentioned Alex and, and I could just as easily have mentioned uh, Jamie Pye or Jimmy Pye. Um, I mentioned um, Jamie, I could have mentioned uh, I could have just as easily mentioned Tom Stanky, who worked in, alongside Jamie in the same building for many years. So it's, you know, there's people all over the place that, that are inspirations for me. Oh, that's awesome. And, and three quarters of those, those, um, those names, I, you know, I follow on Twitter and it's, it, it, it really is a snowball effect. And just to see what they're doing in their classroom um, is amazing. And I know Nat Banting, I've, just recently started to follow him and he's, he's just remarkable. Yeah. And any one of these names I mentioned, I think would be great for, for interviewing on a podcast, but they are, you know, it's a huge community, but it's a small community as well. And it's, um, and all of the thing, the thing that all these people have in common is just how, how giving they can be with their time. Yeah, I agree. I actually um, was in Kirk's classroom today which is always a privilege, you know, to visit a teacher's classroom. And when you talk about those teachers who are in the classroom doing the work as our heroes, you know, it really is true. And to be able to see the impact that they're having on kids is certainly an opportunity that, you know, I take every opportunity that I can get to get into those classrooms. And that's kind of Kirk and I's goal with this, with this podcast is to, we seem to have the time and space to be able to look at what these heroes are offering us and these people that you mentioned are offering us. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to bring that to the teachers in our region and to really let them know that because of course they're noticing a lot of the things you noticed that sparked your research. And, um, but it's, it's that roadmap. It's that navigation as to what next, how to really, you know, like you talk about, interrupt that studenting piece and really build thinking classrooms. So maybe you can help us to kind of get that word out to them by talking a little bit about your, your framework and, and how it came to be and the questions that you were asking and the, the noticings you were having in classrooms that kind of sparked your curiosity to, to move into that research. Okay. I'd be happy to, but before I do, I do want to come back to this idea of the, the teacher as a hero, you know, it's, like one of the things that I'm that I'm blown away by is the impact that a teacher can have on an individual student's life, right? And I saw this with my own kids, 
how an, how an individual teacher can impact my child's life. I have three kids or how in, in a positive way or in a negative way. And like a teacher, a, a teacher who makes heroic efforts to be the best teacher they can be for their students will have long lasting impact on these children's lives. But it's also just the sheer magnitude, like a high school teacher in their career is going to encounter thousands and thousands upon thousands of students. Right. So the, the that impact is massive. So, okay, now getting back to your question. So I was a high school teacher um, and I was, I was at the time when my work on this started, I was doing my PhD. And when I did my master's, I continued to be a high school teacher. But when I started doing my PhD, I thought, okay, this is time to step out of the classroom. I need to, I need to really focus on these studies. But I wasn't out of the classroom for very long before I started to really miss the classroom. And there was a bunch of circumstances that led to me being invited into classrooms and then me seeking out classrooms. And it was during this time that I had the privilege of visiting 40 different teachers in 40 different buildings and sitting and watching them apply their craft. And these were, these were great teachers. These were teachers who had been recommended to me as good teachers. And, um, and I got, to, I got to be that fly on the wall, right? As you said, Michelle, like to sit, to sit in a classroom and not have to be concerned with all the teaching and all the learning and the curriculum and the assessment <laughs> and, and all the other, the attendance and the announcements and the assembly and all of the things that go on in, in the lives of a classroom teacher, not to mention all of the chaos that comes with the, the disruption that each and every personality that comes into the room brings, including the observers, um, and if you don't know what that's like, try being a, a fly on the wall in a kindergarten classroom. It's just impossible, right? You are the center of attention and the jungle gym, both at the same time. <laughs> and um, so, so I got this, I had this privilege to sit and watch. And, and originally, you know, like most teachers, when they do get an opportunity to be in a classroom to watch what goes on, they tend to watch the teacher. They tend to, to try to see what the teacher is doing and, and how they, and they try to map what the teacher is doing onto their own context and to try to map their practice onto what, to the context that's happening here. So it's, it's a really natural thing to do is to, when you're a teacher, to be in a classroom, you want to watch the teacher. But I was deliberately not watching the teacher. What I was watching were the students. I was deeply interested in what is it that the students are doing because I never get to watch that. Right? And not just watch what the students are doing, but to watch what the students are doing from a position where the students may not know that I'm watching what they're doing. So that's sort of behind the curtain peak. And, and as I, and you know, it, it was these 40 visits, but beyond that, when I spend time in classrooms, if you spend enough time in classrooms, you don't just get to watch what students are doing. They invite you into letting you see what they're doing and, and the things that they share and the way they interact with you that are different from the way they interact with me when I'm a classroom teacher was really, really interesting. But nonetheless, I watched these 40, these 40 classrooms and what I started to see was, was interesting and, and troubling. Um, so the first thing I, I need to say is I saw a lot of activity, right? These were, these were 
I was in these classrooms because they'd been recommended to me. And there was a lot of good activity. There was a lot of, the students were doing a lot of things, right? There wasn't a, a lot of idle time. But when I started to analyze what these things were that they were doing, I started to realize that by and large, what they were not doing was thinking, right? They were, there was a lot of note-taking in the higher grades. There was a lot of um, task completing worksheets, working out of books. Um, there was a lot of sort of I do, you do things going on. Um, and in fact, I saw that in all 40 classrooms where the teacher would demonstrate and then the students would replicate. And, and it wasn't surprising then when I started to realize that the dominant behavior I saw in the students was mimicking. So over 50% of all the students I observed were mimicking. They were they were taking what they had been shown by the teacher and then replicating it in their own work. And, and when I interviewed teachers about this, an interesting thing came about, which was that, yeah, you know, I, every one of the teachers I asked didn't actually want their students to mimic. Mm -hmm. They said things, well, no, I don't. I want them to actually see if they understand this. I want them to check their understanding. I want them to try to figure it out on their own. When I pushed a little deeper, some teachers would say, yeah, okay. Maybe, maybe I want them to mimic at the beginning, but really what I want them to do is to, to, to just do it on their own, to see if they understand. And the interesting thing was 100% of the kids that I interviewed, and I didn't interview all of them, but 100% of the kids I interviewed all said that they that their teacher wants them to mimic. So clearly there was a miscommunication here. The teacher was striving for something that was, I would say, was more altruistic than mimicking. The students were hearing that the teacher wanted them to mimic. And mimic was not the same as thinking. It was not the kind of th thinking that we need our students to do in order for them to be successful in the future. So that is what kickstarted the whole process because I realized that if students aren't thinking, they're not learning. And if we want them to think, we're gonna to have to radically change what it is we're doing in the classroom. And, and thus was born the Building Thinking Classroom Project. They didn't have that name at the beginning. At the, name, at the beginning, it was just me mucking around in a bunch of classrooms <laughs> trying to get students to think. The name came later. <laughs> And I think, I think that's so critical when we talk about the fact that the teachers that you were watching were so well-intentioned with the way that they were doing things, right? They wanted the best for their kids. And I know reflecting on my own practice, I always thought that if a student was given a task, like you talk about, or an activity, and they weren't able to do it, then it was something that I had or hadn't done that didn't prepare them. There wasn't right. even really a, a deep reflective piece that said, this is what learning is. Right. So now we have vocabulary of things like productive struggle, right, and perseverance and grit. And these are things that are really common in our discourse now about how we want students to work. But this was 15 years ago. And, you know, problem solving was just emerging in the curriculum at the time. So... Mimicking really was sort of like the way things were done. And, and I do, and I say in my book, these 40 teachers were recommended to me as good teachers. They knew their content. 
They knew their kids. They cared about the kids learning the content. They were monitoring. They were not letting kids fall through the crack. They were doing what they were trained to do. They were, they were being what they thought they were supposed to be doing. And, and, um, and they were doing that very well, right? These were passionate, dedicated, mindful, thoughtful, and intentional teachers. And so, so that was it. It was, the question was, how do we, how do we change this? How do we change this equation? If the goal is to focus on learning, and my, my intention was to focus on thinking, because as far as I could tell, like there'd been an itch in math education for a long time. Ever since the NCTM standards in, I would say, 1988, there'd been this sort of itch that we knew something was wrong. And, and we had tried to scratch it in lots of different ways. And I thought that maybe the thing that was missing was what I was seeing, lacking, which, which was sort of student thinking. So that became my focus. And that sort of sustained me for the next 15 years as I worked to try to find practices that gets thinking, that get thinking going and, and sustain that thinking within the classroom. Alex Overwich says it so nicely. He said for the first 20 years of his career, he came to school so the teachers could watch or the students could watch him do math. Right. And now since 2014, he comes to school so he can watch the students do math. That's powerful. Yeah. I think too, I like the way that Lisa Lani Borden speaks about that. And she talks about the fact that, you know, we let kids play with structure and, and we let, then students figure things out and then we help to consolidate their findings and see the patterns in what they have found. And then we just can name it really. That's where our job comes in as teachers. And uh, Sarah Vanderwerf says it well too, right? Like let them see it before we show them and let them say it before we tell them. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's right. We're giving vocabulary to the things that they have been doing. Absolutely. And I, I, I love the book, Peter, and your work. Um, it, it's, it's very practical. And I think when you really take time and, you know, through each chapter and reflect on, am I really doing this? You know, and then what next? The, the, the steps forward are so clear and practical. Can you give our, can you give our listeners just um, maybe a little glimpse into what a thinking classroom looks like and sounds like? Okay, so um, so first of all, if, if there's a thinking classroom in your school, you'll definitely know it, right? They don't look anything like other classrooms. So if, if you were to walk in, if, if we were to walk into your classroom, Kirk, I imagine that what we would see is, and if we were there right at the beginning of the lesson, um, we would see students you would come in, you would sit, you would gather the students around you and you would give them some prompt, a question. Then you would randomize them into groups of three and they would go off in their groups of three and work on this task on vertical non-permanent surfaces, which could be a whiteboard, it could be a blackboard, it could be a piece of uh, vinyl picnic table cover stapled to a bulletin board, it could be a window. It doesn't matter what it is as long as they can write on it and they can erase it. And they will work on that. They will work in these groups on these tasks for anywhere between 20 and 50 to 80 minutes. 
Um, meanwhile, what Kirk is doing is he's walking around the room. He's monitoring what's going on. He's seeing where he's needed and he's seeing more importantly where he's not needed. He's interjecting with hints when necessary and extensions when necessary. But more than that, what you're seeing is a huge amount of autonomy within the students so that before Kirk can even get to a group to help to give them the next extension, they've, they've gotten impatient and they've stolen the extension from the group next to them. Um, over in the corner, there's two groups talking together because they're both stuck on something. Um, and that's sort of how a thinking classroom runs. And it will run like that until some point where either the bell rings or the energy in the room wanes, at which point Kirk will gather the students together and take them through a consolidation process, which Michelle, you, you articulated so nicely through different ways of what consolidation is. Um, and, and depending on what grade you're teaching and how much time is left in the lesson, after that consolidation, which will involve some sort of a gallery walk, look, walking around looking at the work of students and what they've contributed to the conversation. Uh, students will sit down and write some meaningful notes to their future forgetful self. Mm-hmm. And then they will check their understanding to see if they, if they can now know and do individually what they have demonstrated, the knowing and doing they demonstrated collectively earlier in the lesson. So there'll be that opportunity to see if the transition, transmission from collective knowing and doing to individual knowing and doing has happened. And I would say that that's what a thinking classroom looks like. What it sounds like is it's noisy, it's full of energy, um, and it's, um, there's no mistake mistaking the fact that there is engagement and thinking. Did I capture it, Michelle? Is that what Kirk's class looks like? You know what? I witnessed that a mere seven hours ago. You're bang on. Yeah. And uh, one thing that I'd really like to ask you about that I'm really finding intriguing in your your book and the things I'm noticing in Kirk's classroom is um, not only the impact that this type of environment has on the development of competencies and proficiencies that are related to learning and thinking and mathematics specifically. But I'm really, I guess, excited about the impact that it has on the social emotional learning of the kids. Right. And I know bringing it back to when you initially talked about those heroes and having kids of our own that we have seen being impacted by the grownups in schools. Um, can you speak a little bit like I'm think, trying to think back to when you started to notice these things about students and you obviously had the intention to build a classroom where kids were thinking. At what point did you notice or did you think about the fact that, wow, this impact on kids is going way beyond the learning of mathematics? Right. So... There's been, it's still, there's still things that come at me that are what I call byproducts of of this work. So one of the first ones was when when I did some really intensive research, I did a case study on uh, random groups. So we were seeing relatively early on in the work that random groups was a really strong contributor to getting students to think. And not just random groups, they have to be visibly random and they have to happen relatively frequently. And so I did this case study where I actually spent a lot of time 
in a high school classroom before implementation of random groups, intensively for the first few weeks after it had been implemented, and then sort of spot checks for, over a, an extended period of time. And there were all these byproducts that kept emerging. Um, so the first thing we noticed was, well, students became agreeable to work in any group that you placed them with. That wasn't true on day one, but at some point after a few weeks, that was, that was true. And it, the kids stopped trying to fight that. They were just happy to work. They'll work with anybody for an hour. More importantly, what we noticed was it was a complete elimination of social barriers within the room. So it wasn't just that students were patient with each other or tolerant of each other. There was really an erosion of social barriers. You know, high school classrooms are fraught with cliques and it's like being on the Serengeti and watching all these herds move around and how they move through each other without interacting with each other. All of a sudden, students were... In the, in the flex time at the beginning of, of the lesson, they were, they were coming in and talking and interacting with anybody, clearly across these cliques and these social stratifications. I would see them, because I was in the building, I would see them staying together in these groups between classes and so on. Um, as, as I interviewed students, I started to realize that these students, they didn't just know each other's names. They knew stuff about each other, stuff that you wouldn't know about each other unless there was these social connections that were being formed. But I think one of the most interesting ones that happened was that in the middle of the study, there was this parent-teacher interview. And I wasn't part of that, but I came to, I was in the school the next day and the teacher said, you know, I, I had like six parents sit down in front of me last night and say, I don't know what you're doing in math, but my son loves coming to math. Uh, <laughs> and it was just like, okay, that's interesting. Um, so I checked attendance records and you could clearly see that since about the three week point after I I implementation, lates were clearly down and, and absences were down. It was just this, these were all these really positive byproducts, these affective things that the students were reacting to. You started to see them rely more on each other and less on the teacher and things like that. So there's these sorts of byproducts that pop up. And it's interesting because on Twitter today, Jordan just posted a little message from a former grade six student. Of, and it was literally like within the hour of, of this grade six student writing to him about how how impactful his class had been and to be in this class and how, how it taught them to not only interact with others, but to share your opinions and, 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 and have that confidence. And these things come at me all the time, these stories that teachers share of, of how transformative these experiences have been for students. And, and, and it's in the last year or two, I've been receiving compliments from different quarters around my work on equity. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't do any work on equity. I'm not a specialist in equity. We, I work with people at the university who are specialists in equity. Lisa Lenny Borden is an expert in equity. I'm not an expert in equity. I don't think I'm working on equity, but what I think has happened is that Thinking Classroom has created a space for equity. And, and it's... And this is one of these byproducts that wasn't on the radar when, when I was sort of working on these micro experiments to try to bring forth thinking. Pretty fortuitous byproduct of your work, I think. Yeah.
it's, you know, what else will come forth? I don't know, but it's, the byproducts are really interesting. Yeah. And I think one of the other byproducts, to be honest, is the, the transformation of teaching. And it's not like the book is a step-by-step -step guide on how to transform your teaching, but that doesn't necessarily transform the teacher, right? But, I, but what I hear from teachers is just how, how being able to see your students be different than what you thought they were capable of is transformative for you as a professional. So when I'm not doing research on thinking classrooms, I do research on affect and particularly beliefs and teacher beliefs. I've been doing this for the last 17 years I've been working in this area. And you can, when you read the book, you see that that's present because those first two sections are really about beliefs of every chapter. Like what is the, what's the issue and what's the problem? Right, like those are those are the beliefs. Uh, dealing, talking about the beliefs, and then what? How do we move towards a thinking classroom? So that's such a part of me is this notion of beliefs, and I think that the beliefs of a teacher are shaped by our early experiences as learners, and then they're also shaped by our experiences as teachers. You know, the beliefs are not unfounded. Whatever it is we believe about students and so on exists because we have daily reminders of these things. But one, I just finished writing a, a book chapter for a different, uh, uh, for a book on evolution of teaching about how so much of teaching is, has been constrained by the, by the institutional norms. And I talk about this in the introduction, but the inst these institutional norms were laid down at the end of the first industrial revolution, right? And these, these, these norms constrain our imagination as teachers and constrain our movement as teachers. So when we, and then it shapes our beliefs because our actions are shaped, are constrained by these norms and then our beliefs are the results of what we see happen in the classroom in front of us. And what I think the book Thinking Classrooms offers is a way to break through some of those norms which allow us to see different things happen in our classroom, which then allows us to, to form beliefs based on different experiences with our students. Absolutely, and I'm, I, I believe in this um, so much. Um, I wanna share with all my colleagues and um, I'm following um, you on Twitter and uh, Laura Wheeler's doing some amazing, amazing stuff with the book study. Yeah. Uh, I, wanna, I, I want our colleagues to, I want them to see it and see yeah. how impactful it is uh, for our students. Um, and I want them to hear it. I'm just wondering what, do you have any more recommendations on how, uh, for me as a teacher, on how to reach other colleagues and in, invite them into to this idea? Oh yeah, well, first of all, I should say that we intended to have videos accompanying the book. So we were all scheduled, and guess what month all the filming was going to happen in? It was March. We were all set to film in these classrooms for two or three days we were going to film. And, and then those videos were going to be edited into these sort of discrete snippets. And then QR codes were going to link the book to those. But of course, then 
the world went sideways in March 2020, and all of that had to go on the back burner. And rather than delay the, the publication of the book, we decided to proceed without the videos. The videos will, we, we still intend to film videos so people can see what this is looking like. Um, and then we'll, we'll probably make, uh, I'll probably write um, a uh, playbook and we'll link the videos inside the playbook. Um, interestingly though, the Ontario, Ontario has just made revisions to their curriculum and they have some videos coming out to sort of exemplify what it is that they're intending in these changes. And those videos are going to be really, I'm not going to say too much about them, but there's going to be some familiar characters in those videos. Let me just say that. Um, but in terms of where do we get where can teachers reach out and find more contacts, right? So I think Twitter, hashtag building thinking classroom or, uh, or thinking classroom, it's hashtag thinking classroom, um, will connect you with hundreds and hundreds of teachers across North America who are implementing this. And you'll start to see some of the names pop up regularly. And those are the good people to reach out to. Um, will Dunn has organized this practice sharing Thing. And I, I imagine, I'm not sure if you're going to be there tonight, but tonight we have Jamie DePipo and Alicia Burdess are sharing their Im implementations of Thinking Classroom around the focus on tasks. And um, so there's a way to reach that on Twitter too and by just following Will Dunn and he advertises this, this series on a regular basis. And as you mentioned, Kirk, there's a book study that happens every Monday night um that that laura runs and that's actually based on the book study guide so if you want if you're if if you if you don't have time to do it on twitter and my goodness it can be chaotic to try to do a, a book study guide on twitter or a book study on twitter the book study guide is on the website building thinking classrooms so you can actually get the book study guide and all those questions that laura is using come from there well, not all of them i think she comes up with some of her own too but but there is certainly a guide there, and the guide is free. So any any teacher, any teach or any coach or any co uh, professional learning community can download that and use that to guide their their experiences as they move through the the book. But I think that the most important thing teachers can do is find other teachers to talk to. So right now I have a, a group of master's students uh, who are working their way through the book, and they formed a WhatsApp group. And apparently that is really robust and, and really sort of timely. I just tried this. Uh, this is what I learned. And others are, I'm about to try this. Any suggestions and, and these sorts of things. Because the, this book is really just the product of teachers trying things. Right? And that's, that's, that's how we move forward. That's how we advance the ball. That's how we move the needle is... We try things, we reflect on it, we talk to each other, we try it again. And I think it's important too that, that we as teachers and math educators, we're doing these tasks as well. So I'm kind of thinking back when I, when I taught in Calgary, I was invited to a PD um, and I walked in and there was white books around and whiteboard space and no seats. Oh, that's gonna be good. So anyways, there was, we did the painted cube task and I, I'll never forget it. I'll just, just the way the, the room was set up, um, kind of the way we, the groups were formed with parrots. 
and just how we as teachers collaborated and we were the students and we had that, you know, that experience of being the student struggling through a task, but working on it to, you know, solve that task. It was really, really powerful. Like this is a pretty standard format for the workshops I lead. And I think, and I think the reason it works is because as math teachers, we were math learners first. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like I said earlier, a lot of who we are as teachers is predicated on our experiences as learners. So, so I always start with, let's do some, let's do a math task and let's put you in the position of learner so that you can have that experience as a learner in a different way. And then we can extrapolate from that what the teaching was that, that, that contributed to that experience. Um, and I think that, you know, as math teachers, we don't spend enough time like people who became math teachers became math teachers because they like math and we don't spend enough time doing math. Right. And I know Dave, Dave Martin is one of my, another one of my math heroes. And he, he says that all the time we have to be doing, doing the math and yeah, yeah we have to be doing it. Yeah. So what, what chapter are you on now, Kurt? Which practice are you working? Just, I, I just finished the, uh, the rubrics. Oh Yeah. The yeah. first set, uh, chapter uh, 12? 11, I believe. Yeah. 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 So in my, my next step, and we kind of we kind of co-created um, a collaboration rubric. Oh, to, yeah. And now I have to, I know my next step is uh, to pick three groups and to, I want to, I want to assess uh, their collaboration and also get them to reflect um, with a highlighter on their on their continuum as well. Yeah, so transformative. It's it's so transformative about that chapter deals all with if there's a behavior that you want to change in your classroom, and how effective doing these sort of co-constructed rubrics are for doing that. And that's not a new idea. What's new is in that chapter is the way I've cut through a lot of the noise, and we experimented with so many different things to find out what actually conveys information to students in ways that was helpful to actually shape behavior. Yeah. It was really, really impactful for me too. If uh, how you talked about, if we value something, we have to show them we actually value it. Yep. Nice. Well, thanks so much, Peter. This has been great. Uh, We don't want to take up too much um, of your time, but we'd love, we'd love to continue to connect with you in our region and, and hopefully, our paths cross in the future. I would like that very much. And uh, after a while, maybe you'll have me back on the podcast when it's, uh, we can do a part two. Yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. That'd be great. Yeah. I I know I have to work on more focusing on those check for understanding questions after to, to move that from the collaborative to the individual and, uh, and work with that. So I got some work to do too. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is, you know, it's uh, it's 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 a constant work in progress. To be honest, it's uh, and that's why I think I was drawn to teaching so much because every day is a new day and every day is different and there's always new challenges. And thinking classroom gives you more tools and a different set of tools for approaching that, but you still got to shape each one of those tools to fit your context and to fit your personality and to implement it in your particular way. So there is. 
there's always a work in progress. Yeah. I, I totally agree. Yeah, no, we're looking forward to uh, reaching out again and uh, picking your brain. I uh, worked alongside you and really thank you for, for your time, Peter. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Have a great holiday. Yeah, you too. Well, thanks for listening. I'm Kirk Keating. And I'm Michelle McCarran. And together we are adding to the equation. Thank you.